You are listening to the Happier at Work podcast, and I'm your host, Aoife O'Brien. This is the podcast for HR and business leaders. We talk about things like leadership, well-being at work, diversity and inclusion, and the future of work. Psychological safety definitely is possible. I do think that, you know, to be able to bring yourself to work and feel safe is something we should all be entitled to do and look for it, find it and create it, you know, force it if you can. My guest on the show today is Susan Nikriadon. Susan and I met through another past guest of the podcast, Helen Joy, who introduced us. And we had a wonderful conversation about all things people and happiness at work. Susan is an Irish lady living in the UK, and that's how she knows Helen. And Helen put Susan and I in touch with each other. Susan founded her business Beyond the Numbers to work with the teams and individuals in organisations who recognise that putting people first generates the greatest return. Her background is in finance and she reached the finance director level at age 33 and she learned that to have an impact required, you need to be brave, bold and build strong working relationships technical excellence wasn't enough. Putting people first was key. Susan has a practical, no-nonsense approach to understanding and helping others resolve issues no matter how intractable they might seem. Susan also hosts her own podcast, Life Beyond the Numbers, and that's for people who are curious about having a more fulfilling work life, essentially. On the podcast today, Susan and I cover a broad range of topics, including boundaries, teams, having difficult conversations, toxic management and psychological safety. I know you're really going to get a lot out of today's episode. It is quite long compared to other episodes, but definitely stay tuned to the end and I'll do a wrap up of all of the key points to bear in mind and ask you what your one action is as a result of listening to the podcast. Welcome, Susan, to the Happier at Work podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to have you as my guest today. So we met initially through a mutual friend, Helen Joy, who's a previous guest on the podcast speaking about first time managers. And she connected us and we had this wonderful conversation. So Susan is based in the UK and Helen is from the UK, also based in the UK, and she connected to Irish people. So we it, that in and of itself, we thought was quite interesting. Um, so, Susan, would you like to tell people a little bit more about yourself and your background? Aoife, it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me this morning. Yes. Uh, so I'm a dingle woman, firstly. Oh, dingle. <laughs> and uh, I started out. Yeah. <laughs> but I started out uh, my career working in accountancy. I trained with Deloitte in Dublin many years ago, the last century, in fact, And at the turn of the century, I headed for Australia, like many Irish people did at the time. And I worked... Myself included, yes. There we go. And worked for two years. Came back to Ireland and had learned a lot from the Aussies, I think, about work-life balance. Interesting. Because they had really thought about, you know, they finished work and left and left work behind. And they were very outdoor living and everything. And I think it started to put something in my head about there was more to life than work. Yeah. But having said that, I, you know, I got a contract back in Ireland and then started to think, well, what else do I want to do? I want to go and live and see more of the world. And so I volunteered with Goal, which is an Irish aid agency, international humanitarian agency, and found myself in Uganda as a financial controller with a a small team two offices, a small team and a small budget, 700,000. But within two years of being there, we'd grown to 4 million, over 100 staff and six offices. Incredible. And that experience was incredible and kind of gave me this impetus that there was so much you could do in the world and got me noticed. So I got promoted by Gold to be roving and I travelled a lot of Africa with them, responded to emergencies like in Pakistan after the earthquake in 2005 and the tsunami earlier that year. But I got fed up of living out of a Mm -hmm. suitcase. And so I relocated back to Ireland, but got a job actually in the UK as a finance director for an international organization that cleared landmines and unexploded ordnance around the world, uh, MAG. 
And it was a really tough job. So I went into quite a difficult environment where we they had um, a lot of financial issues and the whole place basically had to be turned around. And that took a lot out of me. And I suppose I began to question where was where was my life going? And was I just only going to work? Because I was working phenomenal hours for a long time and it's not sustainable. So I actually took a year out, Aoife, and went back to university and studied nationalism and ethnic conflict. And I learned a lot and a lot that you can take to the workplace, actually, uh, because it was all about groups and how groups are formed and what keeps them together and culture from a different aspect. And then I actually, you know, looked around for work in the area, but it is hard to change, to transition Mm. without a proper plan. So I kind of resorted back to finance, applied for a job as a CFO in an organization in Switzerland, and I didn't get it. But it was probably the best thing that ever happened because they came back to me and said, will you come and work with us on a contract basis for a couple of months? And I did. And six and a half years later, I left there (laughs) after relocating to Switzerland and working with them. But I moved from being a finance consultant into program management, into operations and to be the director of operations, overseeing a team of 10 country directors in Asia and Africa, which became a very much a coaching role. So I was the kind of their you know, their representative in headquarters, but they were all very senior individuals who were really good at what they did. And they needed someone who would listen to them and who would challenge them and support and consult, but also challenge so that they grew. And I suppose that's then what took me, Aoife, in a different direction again, because my partner got a job here in Oxford and I relocated with him and decided, right, it's time to to head out alone and, and start my own thing. And as a finance person used to sometimes worry about not being seen beyond the numbers yeah. and also saw the value of seeing beyond the numbers. And so I actually called my business beyond the numbers because there's so much more than numbers in mm. a business. And, and even if that's a payroll number, we all deserve to be seen as a yeah. human. And it's very much about putting people first for me. And of course, I started around the time the pandemic hit, which (laughs) is a challenge in itself. But hey, and that kind of brought me, well, how do I get my platform open a bit? And and that took me to starting my own podcast, which I've called Life Beyond the Numbers. And that can really be about anything. But what it's about for me and my listeners is if you're curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life, then our guests and myself will share stories and insights that can help you. Brilliant. No, I love that. And it's about the stories behind the numbers. And I I just really, really love that approach. Um, In terms of today, what we're talking about is this idea of a toxic work environment. And and before we started recording, we kind of touched on this idea and I'd love to, to get your thoughts on this. A toxic work environment, is it? Is there a kind of a blanket that is just most definitely a toxic work environment versus something that's toxic for an individual? Because, I mean, I love this concept of fit because an individual doesn't fit in and therefore that's toxic for an individual. So, for example, if I am not a very competitive person, but I'm put into a sales team and therefore that's that competitive nature of that team is not a really good fit or a match for me that then becomes a toxic environment for me because I I don't feel like I fit in. I'm not, I don't have that sense of belonging. So I'd love to get your thoughts on, is there this kind of blanket approach to toxicity where there's some organisations or teams that are just toxic and what those traits are or what those characteristics are versus something that that might be toxic for an individual. I always like to think of of these, you know, that that a company doesn't set out to be toxic, let's say. Um, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't think anyone sets out to be toxic, do we? And 
I suppose if we bring it to the emotional side of things, you know, negative emotions like, I mean, negative isn't always the right word because sometimes some of them can be constructive anyway. Mm. But, you know, anger or fear or competitiveness can be seen as negative even. Is that an emotion? Well, it's more of a trait maybe. That can, they spread you know, things are infectious. Mm. And so if you've got a happy workplace and everyone's really happy, that's spread as well. Yeah. But we're more, unfortunately, as humans, we're more geared towards the negative side, which I find fascinating in itself because I'm very positive and not in a kind of a, you know, kumbaya, woohoo, everything's <laughs> rosy in the garden. Yeah. But I just have a positive mindset yeah. and rarely find things negative mm. or get stuck in that mode. But you can easily find yourself in a negative environment. And what does that look like? Okay, so I walk into a meeting room and everybody's looking at their feet mm. and there's just an air in the room of, oh God, here we go again. And I don't want to be in this meeting or this is a waste of time. And I always think it's the person at the top as well, Aoife, who sets the tone. And whether that's the management team or the team leader, that's where your your negative environments come in. So if we take the tone at the top at the beginning, so if your leader is a bit of a bully, then that is going to spread throughout the organization and it's going to have a knock-on toxic impact. Yeah. And some people will replicate that because mm. it's what they see and it's what they think will endear them, I guess, to the line manager as well. And so that kind of thing, I think, spreads quite easily. And I've certainly seen that in situations where you'll have maybe a group of five senior leaders together. They'll all start to kind of replicate one another and that will find its way down through the organisation. And it's the people then down at grassroots level that are struggling under the weight of this toxic environment. And so you can have that, you can have it just spread like a disease mm. through the organisation. But on the other side, you can just have a team leader perhaps one of those five is toxic yeah and maybe in an environment where the five senior managers are together they they get on okay and the goodness <laughs> balances out the badness yeah. for want of better terms but maybe that person with his or her team is 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 creating a toxic negative environment and usually how it shows up is people are afraid to say what's on their mind. Yeah. They're afraid to voice their opinion. They're, they think their opinion doesn't count, that actually there's no point in saying anything because no one will listen. And even if they do listen, they won't understand. And it, it's those kind of subtle cues. And we think toxic has to be horrendous or, you know, something you would just never put up with, but actually the term toxic can just be that it's not psychologically safe in, in that work environment. And I don't feel like going to work today because I don't trust my colleagues or they don't have my back. Now, in a, if it's one team, it's easier to identify and do something about it. <laughs> If it's the whole organisation, then I suppose you need to cut off the head often <laughs> to kind of turn things around, you know. Um, but culture is, you know, yourself, Aoife, culture and fit, they're very intangible. Yeah. And it's, it's making that what might be un invisible and intangible, making it tangible and visible. Yeah like writing down where this is impacting me or recording how does this make me feel, that's when you start to see that this is not good for me or I'm not being myself at work or I'm my workplace is, is constricting me as opposed to bringing me alive or letting me shine. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, there's there's loads to dive into there, Susan. This concept of psychological safety, I think it's crucially important. It is what builds trust in an organisation do I feel safe? And you're, you're so right in saying like oftentimes you might perceive a toxic environment as being something that's very obviously bad. But if you're in an environment that is not psychologically safe, you might not realise it, that you just don't feel safe in sharing your opinion. You just don't feel like you want to go into work. You don't feel like you can trust your colleagues to do the right thing. Um but you'll still kind of put up with it and you'll still go into work every day. You'll still show up and, and kind of get involved, and, but you just won't maybe share your best ideas. You won't challenge the existing thinking. So I, I really, really love that idea. What I will say about this concept of culture and fit, what it is and can be very intangible, I suppose with my data background, I come at it from the perspective that it is a measurable thing and that you can, you can ascertain what the the values are in an organisation and you can ascertain whether or not those values are being lived within the organisation. So whether it's, you know, these are the values that we talk about and that we espouse in in the organisation, but are people actually, do people buy into those? Um, And and you can measure whether or not that's actually happening. How are decisions being made in an organisation? How do people behave especially at the top, you know, and and it does go back to what you were saying, this all, the culture of an organisation comes from the leadership 100%. And whether that's an individual leader with kind of a strong personality, um, you know, whether that's a positive or a negative thing or a collection of leaders, exactly like you said. So really, really interesting. And I, I love this concept of psychological safety. So maybe we start there and talk about how to build more psychologically safe environment. Yeah. You know, the funny thing is, I suppose, is if let's take the home environment first, because at home, you hopefully you have a psychologically safe environment. Mm. (laughs) You know, you, you can talk to the people that you live with or your maybe it's even friends if you live alone, you know, that you have a group of people who you feel safe opening up to. You trust them that they're not going to use that against you or tell everybody or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. but also, and they support you, but also they might challenge you to change the way you think about something or to look at different things or to to grow. So, you know, if you think about parents and kids, I guess that's what parents hopefully are doing is giving their kids this psychologically safe environment and teachers as well Mm. in the school. And you're kind of, you're supporting, you're consulting with them and you're challenging them as well. So in a way, hopefully many of us, before we ever get to the workplace, have encountered psychologically safe environments. And what happens when we get into work? We stop trusting one another Mm. for some reason. We stop being open. And, you know, I suppose if I think back when I joined the workforce, whatever, 1996 now, so 25 years ago, you certainly, you were two different people, I think. Yeah. And maybe not intentionally, but you would never open up about, well, I feel a bit crap today or actually... I don't really understand what you're talking about or whatever. It was very hierarchical, I suppose. Mm. And in a way, the hierarchy, the command and control type environment is not conducive often to psychological safety. You know, the psychological safety is like break those boundaries, barriers, silos down a bit and let's talk to each other on a human level. Yeah. Let's be open with another one another. And this is not about being soft or being kind of touchy-feely. This is about creating a constructive environment where people can speak to one another openly and honestly, say what's really going on, what they agree or disagree with, without being combative about it. But there's nothing wrong with disagreement and there's nothing wrong with open um what's the word conflict's not the word but you know constructive conflict yeah like positive conflict yeah you know having a proper bloody debate about something yeah but not feeling that you can't say what's on your mind 
So being having the environmental supports allowing you to say what's on your mind, but then supporting others when they disagree with you, you know, to, to, to let them bring that out and kind of getting together in a way that challenges each other to grow. Yeah. Now, if you're, I mean, I've been in plenty of meetings where we say we're going to be innovative today. You know, let's let's be innovative. <laughs> you know, we really need, it's one of our values. <laughs> let's turn on our innovative uh, thinking hats. <laughs> and then somebody says, well, I think we should do this. And everybody goes, yeah, 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 let's do that. Because it was the boss and nobody wanted to say that was a crap idea. Yeah. Mm. Or it was the most loudest person in the room who drowns everyone out. And that is not a psychologically safe environment. Mm. And if you and you'll never innovate. If people are sitting in a room going, well, there's no point in me saying what I think is really going to make a difference here because no one's going to listen. They're going to drown me out. They're only interested in listening to so-and-so over there. Then you can't have, that's not psychologically safe yes. and it's not conducive to um, innovation. Yeah. And I suppose there's a couple of different elements to dive into there, Susan. And it's this, if you're in a psychologically unsafe environment, like, do you broach the subject? Do you have that conversation? Versus if you are in a psychologically safe environment and you are able to have that difficult conversation, how do you actually go about doing it then? So a couple of different elements there to, to maybe ponder. So firstly, I suppose, how do you know you're not in it? And I think that's the thing that many of us take for granted that work is just like this. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's when you when you hear yourself perhaps thinking my voice isn't valued. I, you know, I'm afraid to speak up or I, I won't offer my opinion or you you bite your tongue, you hold your tongue. That's when you start to realize it's not safe here. Yeah. Now, sometimes there's a difference between being afraid to speak up because actually, you know, you need the confidence to do that. This is a bit different. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is more about um, actually no one's going to listen and it's, it's you know, I'm, I'm going to be shot down. The messenger is going to get shot. So I think it's firstly identifying that the environment is psychologically unsafe. Now, you know, who do you go to about that? Well, if the whole organization is like that, there must be people that you get on with that aren't. Yeah. And, you know, I think teams in organization, you'll often have informal teams who work together. Yeah. So perhaps you have an informal team and you have a psychologically safe environment. I think if you maybe talk about it and dissect and, and support one another, that that will help you to think about, OK, how can we positively influence others mm. to move towards this way of working? Yeah. And I suppose I think, Aoife, it's about sacrificing yourself sometimes. <laughs> the sacrificial lamb. <laughs> the lamb. And hopefully not the lamb to slaughter. But if you feel self-confident and you have enough self-belief that this isn't the right environment, you can start by being open and vulnerable and trusting others and showing that trust, supporting people, encouraging people. You can be the lone voice that starts to shift an organization to change. And you will get joined by others. You know, I think that's one thing. Sometimes it's the, it's the ripple effect, mm. isn't it? Now, again, it'll depend on how widespread the negative or the toxic environment is. If it's just a team and your team leader is the person who's constraining everybody, then I guess it is talking to either their boss or somebody on their management team mm. or your HR people. Yeah. And actually... You know, you talk about data and you're absolutely right. When I meant what I meant about intangible, mm. is it's often a feeling. Yeah, absolutely. But the only way that you're going to be able to express that is turning it into data. Mm. And the data needs to be recorded. So it's like, you know, even after a meeting, reflect on what happened in that mm. meeting and make notes. 
And I suppose this is what I, I'm a spreadsheet person, you know, I'm going to be with as in with a numbers background, <laughs> yeah. but I would, I would often keep notes in a spreadsheet under certain headaches, yeah. headaches, <laughs> headings, because <laughs> no, they were headaches, uh, under certain headings about, you know, well, I encountered this today in this meeting. And then you start to see a theme and you know it's more than you. Yeah. Sometimes you feel like it's only me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think when you can look back and notice a pattern or a theme, then you have evidence or data. And it's so much easier to go and sit in front of somebody and produce examples. Because then, you know, we talked about difficult conversation, Aoife, then the conversation isn't difficult. Yeah. For me, what's difficult about a difficult conversation often is it's difficult for you. You know, you feel, oh, my God, how am I going to have this conversation? So what you want to do is you want to dissolve that difficulty. And data is the way to do that. Because if you sit in a room and you just say, oh, this is crap and I I can't handle it. And, oh, Jesus, you know, your man is a pain in the ass or whatever it might be. You're not really going to influence others' opinion. You might just make yourself look bad. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you can go down and and you can sit in a room and you can say, Aoife, yesterday I was in a meeting with my team and our discussion was around psychological safety for want of a better topic. (laughs) And, uh, you know, what I noticed was nobody in the room said anything unless the team leader kind of, it was in agreement with him and no one said anything differently. And then what I noticed was I wouldn't say anything differently. And even though I didn't agree with what he was saying, I didn't feel I could voice my opinion. And then whoever you're talking to hopefully can dive in a little bit more, maybe do some discreet inquiries. And oftentimes these things have a way of writing themselves. Mm not themselves, they're not going to write themselves, but, you know, once you involve others and there's a spotlight on it, other things come to light and you can tackle them, but no one can tackle things if they're silent. If you'd like to know more about what I can do for your business, please head over to my website, happieratwork.ie, where I have more details on the services that I offer. I offer various different types of things for organizations like yours. I offer speaking, coaching, consulting, with a huge focus on data and analytics and how to use data to make better people decisions. I have a couple of ongoing public projects at the moment in relation to researching employee well-being first-time managers and I will be making those results publicly available as well so if you would like to get access to that head on over to my website. I I love this approach of using data to kind of what you mentioned was dissolve difficult the difficulty out of a difficult conversation but I suppose I'd love to dive in in a bit more detail if and I, you know, I'll put my hand up and say that I am this kind of person. I do tend to shy away from having those difficult conversations. So I suppose I'd love to get your thoughts on how how to get started. Like how how do you be maybe it's uh, you're finding the courage to have those difficult conversations that you have to have at work? So, yeah, I mean, I suppose the way I think about it is people are just people. Mm. So all of us are we're just human beings. And if we treat each other as human beings and think that actually Aoife sitting across from me has the same, you know, she gets up in the morning, she goes, brushes her teeth, goes to the loo, whatever, you know, you we kind of do the same things. And if I open up in a human to human, person to person type relationship that Aoife will engage in conversation with me too. Now, It's also accepting the feelings that are going on inside your body, Mm. right? Because I I do a lot of, I'm I'm in Toastmasters, right? And I love public speaking. If you don't know what Toastmasters is, it's, you know, it's public speaking. And I really enjoy it. Now, before a speech, and this is before any conversation that you kind of you're maybe thinking about is what I will feel is probably butterflies in my stomach 
and there'll be a bit of an adrenaline rush. And some people talk about dry mouth and others talk about all sorts of different feelings. Sweaty palms and yeah. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And for me, that's a sign that my body is getting ready to perform. Yeah. And I frame it as excitement rather than nerves. Mm. And I think I have to feel like this so that I can gear myself up to perform. And I suppose that's what we're doing every time we're having a conversation. There's an element of performance in it. Mm. And so I think it's it's making friends, for want of a better way of describing it, with those feelings and actually saying, well, what am I really afraid of here? What's difficult about this for me? And break it down. Now, that's all well and good because you still have to have the conversation. But if we take something like a difficult conversation being the first time I had to fire someone, Aoife, and I was in Africa and I had to fire a a guard at the office and he had, I mean, he'd stolen from us basically, you know, so it was absolutely warranted that this guy needed to go. But he also was probably feeding his family And maybe there were other families dependent on him as well. And, you know, his earnings were very low. And for me, I was so worried about that conversation. I, you know, I really didn't want to have it. I would have done anything not to have it, but it was my job. And my boss said to me, Susan, if you didn't feel like this, you wouldn't be human. And that was a great kind of leveler. And so what I did was I started thinking about me. I thought about the person across from me and how I could best break bad news, I suppose. And not necessarily how I would want it to be broken to me, because that's not what it's about either. It's who is this person in front of me and how can I be as compassionate and kind towards them? even if this conversation starts to get difficult. Yeah. And oftentimes when we worry about what the other person's going to think or how they're going to react or what they're going to do, but we've no control over that. So really think about yourself and how you can best show up and then go with the conversation and If it does start to get a bit angsty or whatever, stop. Allow silence in a conversation. We're afraid of silence. We don't like quiet. We think we have to fill that void. And actually silence is usually really helpful. The other thing about a difficult conversation is, especially if you're firing someone, they are having maybe performance reviews. When people get bad news or something they take as personal, that it's critical or whatever, even if it's not intended that way, they're not going to hear anything else you say. Yeah. So stop and let them process and ask questions. And I think that's something I learned over the years as well. It's not about you showing you know it all or you showing a brave face or you being extra strong it's about you showing up for the person who's sitting across from you and actually you're doing them a disservice by avoiding them and yourself too I think because when you avoid something you give it a lot of headspace (laughs) and it tends to grow in your head yeah 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 it tends to get bigger and bigger and bigger and actually what I find is the more you sit down and talk with people and are open And also come from a, let me, help me understand, because maybe you don't have it right too. But you don't have to know everything about what you're talking about. You don't have to have all the answers. You just need to be a human being in a room and respond to the other human being. Yes, prepare yourself, prepare your thoughts. It's never going to go as you planned. And I have had people blow up in front of me like, you know, get really aggressive and assertive. And I've had people who've thanked me for being open with them and whatever. And I think you, it is about you learning to feel comfortable. And it's like anything, Aoife, the more you do it, the better you get. Yeah. And 
In fact, the last person that I had to let go in a job I was in, she gave me her personal phone number, her personal email address and a hug as she was leaving the office. And that for me, you know, I'm not trying to sing my own praises here or anything, but I had become, you know, competent at having uncomfortable conversations yeah. in a way that put the other person first. Yeah. 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 Now, I think that's a really, really nice approach and that people probably often neglect. They're worried more about how they come across, whether they know what they're talking about, whether they'll be able to answer all the questions that come up in the conversation. Um, so a really, really nice approach to put the other person first. So that 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 first experience you spoke about, was that the, that was your first experience of having a truly difficult conversation that you didn't have any other option but to actually have the conversation as opposed to shying away from that because exactly as you said Susan that was your job and did you find then that once you had that conversation it became easier over time as you had to have more of those conversations it never does Aoife oh okay <laughs> that was not no, a, that, not what I was expecting <laughs> And I don't, I don't mean it like that. I think it's always, you know, those conversations always try you and they should in a way, because that, that it's like that adrenaline I talked about earlier, you know, you're going into some sort of a performance and I don't mean you're going to be fake. I mean that you have to prepare to give that your all. Yeah. And like you would a job interview or anything else, all of these are kind of difficult conversations. And if they become easy, then you become blasé about it. Okay, yeah, yeah. So that's what I mean, I suppose. Yes, it certainly becomes easier because I became more aware of maybe what was going on inside of me and more calm outwardly. Mm. I was able to master that outward calmness, even if there was a bit of inner turmoil. Because there's still, when you're holding space for somebody and they're clearly and visibly upset or angry, there's all sorts of like stuff firing in you mm. going, get out of here, danger, danger, yeah. danger. <laughs> so I think I got much better at remaining calm and actually got much better at being silent. Okay. And that's where I noticed that things really took off was if I shut up and just sat, not sat back, but actually really held, you know, somebody's look or showed that I was ready to talk about to them, that they processed. And I think that's what it's about. It's like you need time to process. Anytime you get a shock or bad news, you know, and I often ended up answering the same question over and over and over again. As yeah. as someone processes it, is it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I never once said we've been over this or, you know, I never looked at my watch. And I think that's it. You have to be there for that other person. Yeah. Put your own needs away and be there. And when you're thinking about someone else, you're not thinking about yourself and you're showing up better. And they notice so I suppose going back to this thing about whether or not it gets easier, it's you can kind of maybe master the skills better, but don't get complacent about it because you're still showing up in a very full way for another human being. Uh, and you need to be there to hold that space for them to be comfortable in the silence uh, and all of those great things. And I think you have to feel that that kind of that adrenaline rush as well. Aoife. You have to feel that this is important. Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to make the conversation difficult for you or difficult for them, but they're still difficult. Yeah. You know, it's not a conversation either party would choose to have, probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, is there anything else that you wanted to share in relation to this idea of psychological safety and being able to hold those difficult conversations? So I think... I suppose the thing about psychological safety is when you have that, you have an amazing work environment and work team. And I'm a, I really like the book Nine Lies About Work. I don't know if you've read that. No, book. I haven't. Uh, no, it's an excellent book. It's written by Marcus Buckingham and I can't remember the other guy now, but they um one is Cisco and one is StrengthsFinder, whatever. Yeah, and I know, I know the StrengthsFinder book, all right, from Marcus Buckingham. Yeah, 
Yeah, they use a load of data mm. from studies around the world and they bring in nine lies about work. And one of the things they say about work is that work is really about the team you're in. You know, that you can survive a lot if your team is good. So even if the whole workplace is crap in general, yeah. if you're in a really great team, you'll put up with everything. And and I think there's something to be said about that. I think if you're in a team that you will do anything for your team members, you know, and you'll show up for them and you kind of push each other to do better and you will innovate and you'll be creative and you'll support one another and you'll also play on each other's strengths because you'll realize, well, you know, Aoife's way better at podcasting than Susan is. So let's get her having that part and I'll do the, the numbers yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I think that there's psychological safety definitely is possible. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, I wouldn't say a right, but I think it kind of is because I think that's dignity at work. Yeah. I do think that, you know, to be able to bring yourself to work and feel safe is something we should all be entitled to do and look for it, find it and create it, you know, force it if you can. I suppose that would be an interesting avenue to go down, Susan, is this idea of, if I am a leader and I've realised the importance of psychological safety and I realise that actually I haven't created a psychologically safe environment, what are the steps that I need to take in order to change things around? Yeah. So I suppose the first thing you have to do is admit that out loud to others. Okay. And I think that shows leadership. You know, there's this sense that leadership is you have to know the answer and you're on top and blah, blah, blah. But actually, for me, leadership is about admitting you don't know. Yeah. You <laughs> don't have saying, all the answers. Yeah. yeah. And kind of sitting down with your team and going, do you know what? I've realized that we used to work really well together in certain respect. And, you know, we did X really, really well. And of late, the energy is low. Yeah. I feel like maybe you're not talking to me as much, but I've noticed that I'm dominating the conversation or I've noticed I'm not giving you the space to really come and tackle an issue with me. So again, it's back to the sacrificial lamb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's about being vulnerable yourself, putting yourself out there and maybe asking people to recall when was the kind of last time that as a team, we worked together well. What do they think? And that's not for you to respond to. It's your data collection exercise. And Amy Edmondson is the, I suppose, the founder or this, the person who talks about psychological safety. And you can Google, there's like seven questions to ask to establish whether or not there's a psychologically safe environment where you are. And you can use those questions even with your team that, you know, it's again, it's like, do you feel safe speaking up? Yeah. Now you might want to give them that to do as a questionnaire, but I think, I really think it starts with you as the leader. You have to be open to the feedback. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it all. Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's all right, but you have to be open to it and you have to show people that it's safe to give it. And once people see that it's safe and you didn't come back at them or no one laughed at them or whatever it might be, mm. everyone else will start to open up. And that's where the magic happens. Yeah. Isn't it? When people actually, and every voice matters, every voice counts. And going back to what you said earlier, Susan, as well, this idea of innovation, like, oh, this morning we're going to be really innovative. Like you can't just turn that stuff on. But if you create an, an environment that's psychologically safe and where people are free to share their ideas, no matter how far out there, then that's where exactly to your point is that's where the magic happens. You know, that's where that idea might be a bit too far, but actually that's that gave rise to someone else having another idea that where they're taken on from experience of, of an area that they have or, you know, uh, things like that. So, yeah, we really, really like that. Really, really like that approach. And there's, sorry, there's kind of a nice analogy, Aoife, with 
with nature as well. Okay. So if you think of a well-tended garden, you know, how does your garden grow? And it's well-tended and the weeds are cleared and it's watered and it blossoms. And on the other side of the road, you have the garden that, yeah, sure, it's growing wild and everything's all over the place and there are briars and brambles. But is it a garden? Is it doing what you wanted it to do? Is it blossoming? And the other garden, I don't know, it's, you know, everybody loves it and wants to spend time with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it kind of ties in with this idea of setting clear expectations, setting clear guidelines and having clear boundaries as to, you know, what what we do and what we don't do here. Um, Yeah, really, really. I think boundaries are very underestimated. Yeah. And again, you know, boundaries are often the invisible. And I think it's about making your boundaries visible and tangible by agreeing how we're going to work together. Yeah. And, you know, the rules of the game need to be understood by everyone. They cannot just be implied. Because how I understand you is going to be different to how you understand me. And I suppose that's it, isn't it, Aoife? We're all so different. We're all unique. We're all carrying our own, every bit of culture we've got to be at this point in time. And we have to learn how to collaborate, which requires some compromise. But you'll only get there if you tell people when they're crossing your boundary. Yeah. And and this is the the point I suppose I was going to make. So you raise an interesting uh, observation there about we all come with our own baggage, if you like, from previous work experiences. And this is what has actually gone on for me. Therefore, my interpretation of what's going on is going to be somewhat blurred or or skewed by my, my past experiences at work. And in in our interactions and especially from a manager perspective, from a leader perspective, they need to be very much aware that others may have that type of baggage and they may have those types of, of issues going on. Um, and exactly that is tying into this psychologically safe environment that if someone, first of all, knowing what your boundaries are and and even if you've never heard the term before, it's about understanding when something doesn't feel right to you, if you feel like someone has done you wrong in some way, oftentimes we we don't speak up about that and we don't feel safe to have that conversation. But when you start saying, actually, that's not OK, um, you know, whether that might be and this is just um an, an example that has come to the top of my head. But if someone shows up five minutes late to a meeting, for example, and you say that's that's really, it's not okay. You know, you don't say it in front of everyone, but you just explain clearly like that, that it's, it sends a message and you need to show up on time to meetings. And if you can't, then they need to, you know, and I suppose I'm thinking more from a, from a, an office perspective back when I worked in, in an office, but if you're going from meeting to meeting and you have to change rooms, but the meetings start and end on the hour, as opposed to giving a bit of leeway five or 10 minutes in between meetings to have a bit of breathing space and to, to get to your next meeting. Um, but, but really understanding, like if someone crosses that boundary, then having that conversation and feeling safe to have that conversation and I suppose not making assumptions because you don't know I mean anything could have happened for that person to be late but there's I suppose the boundaries I often think about if if I get if you you know you might get an email at 10 o'clock at night and you know on your phone and it pings and you just get this sense of oh would they ever leave me alone (laughs) yeah that's a boundary being crossed but you're the one that doesn't have to answer that or look at it. And you have to make that boundary. But then you tell people, you know, you might send me an email at, after hours. I'm not going to look at it until the morning. Yeah. And I think the clearer you are with people that you, you instead of letting people run with their imagination, yeah. of I can be, you know, have you accessible anytime. The clearer you are, the better you get on. So like for me, I would go on a two week holiday and I would tell everyone I'm not going to be around for two weeks. I'm not going to look at emails, blah, blah, blah. And it always worked. Whereas so many people would check their emails while they're on. This is it. I think if you say 
what a boundary is and you say I'm going on holidays I won't be checking my emails and then you do then your boundaries are kind of permeable and no one can really listen to what it is that you say what you set as a clear boundary and the next time you go on holidays you better believe that you're going to be getting emails that are directed specifically at you um but they, this this whole email thing well first of all I mean email this email culture it frustrates me quite a lot that everything has to go via email um, just because my inbox is constantly overflowing with various different types of messages and, and newsletters and, and things like that. Um, but on, on email specifically, my thoughts are that just explaining to someone in a, in a footer of an email I only see emails or I only send emails between nine and five or alternatively, given that we're in this kind of flexible remote working environment at the moment, I send emails at a time that suits me and I don't expect an immediate response. I do expect a response from you at a time that suits you, you know, so that it is, I don't expect people to be reading emails out of hours. I don't expect people to be answering phone calls out of hours. Um, and if they do, then, and I've crossed a boundary, then then they should let me know. Exactly, exactly. And it is, it's like going to your local bakery or local shop. I mean, they're not going to open the door for you at seven o'clock in the evening just because you want something. They've very close, they've closed their boundary yeah, for the day. Yeah, and yeah. It, it's kind of that simple. And it's, it's, it's like what works for me, what works for the organisation. And there must be a way that both of those match. And, and I think, yeah, you, you have to stand up for yourself. No one, everyone will push boundaries. We start doing that as soon as we're born. We're always looking for more, the next thing, whatever. So you have to set your own boundaries and it's much easier to do it from the beginning. It's so much harder to reclaim something later on. Like you said about the, you know, going on holidays and, um, you know, if you did it once, then people will expect you to do it again. And it's setting those expectations very, very clear. And none of this is rocket science. None of it's particularly difficult, but it's difficult for us. Yeah, yeah. And it's about making a decision that if I'm going to show up at work in my best state, then what do I need to do to be there? And that, I think, is about having boundaries often. And it's easy to say, oh, just one more email before I finish up. Oh, or yeah. Just do this one just more this thing. Just this one more thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then 75 hours later, you know, you're still... <laughs> and no one gives a crap because they've all gone home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is it. Susan, we've covered quite a lot of ground there from toxic work environments, creating a psychological safe environment and boundaries. So we've packed quite a lot into this episode. The question I ask everyone, what makes you happier at work? So if I always go back to my values, I think for this one, because for me, uh, honesty. So I'm, you know, what you see is what you get. And that's what I like back. Yeah. Um, sense of humor. Yes. Having, having fun. Yeah. Having fun at work. Work doesn't need, who said work needs to be serious? It doesn't. Yeah. And that creative playfulness really helps and learning. I love learning and growing. So if I can do all of those at work, yeah, then that makes me happier at work. So I think I talk about finding joy at work and, you know, you talk about happy at work, I'm joy. Yeah. And what, what brings you joy? Do more of that. Yeah. And go for your 80-20 rule if you can. 80%, this is fabulous. 20%, okay, I've got to do it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) this is it. And if people want to reach out and find out more about you and what you do, what's the best way that they can connect? Oh, so many places now, Aoife, you know. (laughs) No, I think LinkedIn is a good start. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. um, And then I have a website beyond-the-numbers.com and a podcast life beyond the numbers and other than that i mean i'm on instagram and twitter as well but that's more that's my fun part yeah, of my yeah. work probably <laughs> 
but LinkedIn and the podcast are probably the two best places. Great. And we'll put a, a link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes anyway, for anyone who wants to connect. Um, you know, similar to myself, a complicated Irish name, uh, Irish surname in your case, Irish first name in my case, that often if you're not from Ireland, you don't know how to spell it. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you so much, Susan, for your time today, for sharing your wisdom and your insights. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to chatting to you again in the future. Yes, thank you, Aoife. It was great. Before I get into wrapping up some of the key points from today's show, I would love to get your thoughts on what you heard today and what you might implement. So hop on over to LinkedIn and get involved in the conversation. I would love to hear what action you're going to take as a result of listening. So one of the kind of areas that we started with in the conversation was that sometimes people are afraid to say what's on their mind. They feel like there's no point, no one will listen or understand. This is representative of a toxic work environment. It's not psychologically safe. You feel that people don't have my back or or I can't really trust whoever it is that I'm dealing with. And as a reminder, when you create a psychologically safe environment, it, it dramatically improves team performance, but also it demonstrates that people are able to trust each other, that people are able to speak up when they have something on their mind as well. We spoke about how this toxicity or negative emotions can actually spread throughout organisations and can be infectious. So when you're thinking about psychological safety, it's important to reflect on whether it's representative of one team or the entire organisation. Some questions to think about for yourself. So how does this make me feel? Can I be myself at work? Can I bring my whole self to work? Sometimes we stop trusting and we stop being open at work and we we create kind of two different personas. And I know that we've spoken on this on the podcast before. Work tends to be moving more and more towards this one persona. You can be, you can bring your whole self to work. You can be yourself at work and you don't have to switch into work mode versus personal mode. But when you stop trusting, then you, you can have these two different people. You have home Aoife versus work Aoife. A lot of what we spoke about on the podcast today centers around this idea of talking to each other on a human level, which is much, much more constructive than anything else. We spoke about conflict and the importance actually of positive conflict. So having that sense of conflict, it demonstrates that people feel safe enough to actually argue against the the general consensus and, and the general feeling within an organization. It breeds innovation within a team as well. What you want to avoid is things like work is just like this. Work doesn't have to be like that, in my opinion. When it comes to having difficult conversations, then uh, data dissolves the difficulty. So it's using solid examples. Again, we touched on treating each other as humans. When it comes to being the person delivering a difficult message, it's accepting the feelings. So making friends with the feelings and and telling yourself that my body is getting ready to perform. Ask yourself what's difficult about this and, and take some time to process that in advance. Think about the person across from you. Who is this person? How can I be compassionate and kind? How can I best show up? Allow for silence. In a performance review situation, it's not about being personal or critical. You can let them process then as you're discussing and allow them to ask questions as well. And again, it's putting it back on the person across from you. Show up for the person across from you and help them to understand what's going on for you and for them. Vulnerability is something that has come up again and again recently, especially on the podcast. And as a leader, it's about admitting that you don't have all the answers, showing that level of vulnerability and maybe posing the question, when was the last time we worked well together? Susan also spoke about Amy Edmondson and the seven questions on psychological safety. One of the key things is being open to feedback and show people that it's actually safe to give feedback as well. We spoke about boundaries 
And one of the core questions being, how are we going to work together? What are the rules of the game? And these rules need to be agreed to by everyone. The clearer you are around your boundaries, the better you're going to get on. Sometimes people can push boundaries, but it's about standing up for yourself, especially in this time of remote working, of hybrid working going forward. And it's much easier to establish clear boundaries from the beginning. If you notice that something is starting to bother you, then it's it's best to speak up straight away when that happens. And kind of wrapping up everything that we spoke about, it's about making a decision to show up at work in your best state. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Happier at Work podcast. I'm delighted to have you here. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd love if you could rate or review the podcast or share it with a friend. You'll find me on the website happieratwork.ie.